Hey everybody, John Heilman here and welcome to part two of this very special two-part episode of Hell and I Water with former Virginia congressman and Republican staffer on the 1-6 committee, Denver Riggleman. In part one of the podcast, we did a preview of the hearings that are kicking off in primetime this week. Those start on Thursday night, June the 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern. We talked about the key way in which the story of Mark Meadows will figure in these hearings. We talked about the pressure campaign on Mike Pence and the role that will play in making the public case about a conspiracy to try to subvert a free and fair election in 2020. And of course, about the question of Donald Trump's criminal liability for the insurrection. If you haven't listened to part one of this two-part episode with Denver Riggleman yet, I want you to hit pause right now and go back and check out part one. And then, only then, come back here for part two and hear us have a really fascinating discussion with Denver about his brief but eventful political career, his run-ins with and denunciations of QAnon, one of the first people out there to see how important and absolutely horrific the role of QAnon has been in our politics. Denver talks about the role of conspiracy theorizing and far-right radicalism in today's GOP. And we also talk about the strange, I mean really strange, like bizarro, and also confounding and upsetting, especially for Denver, part that Bigfoot, yes, I'm talking about Sasquatch, Bigfoot himself, itself, I don't know, Bigfoot, the role of Bigfoot in Denver Riggleman's life. And so, <laughs> talk about a tease, that's a deep tease. All right, so without further ado, here we go, I'm going to give you the second part of our talk with Denver Riggleman on Hell on High Water. All right, so here's what I want to do now. I've been promising we'd step back a little bit and say a little bit about your political career. Although, as you pointed out earlier, you said, I'm not much of a politician. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm glad you said it. I mean, in the sense that you've, you had one term in Congress and then you lost a, a, a primary, a really weird, not even a primary, like some, no. some, weird, some weird fucked up thing that happened in Virginia. We'll get to drive that in a second. Drive-through convention in a church A drive-through drive convention. I said before that I liked the Commonwealth of Virginia, but any place where a drive-through convention in a church parking lot is how you determine a nominee for a congressional seat. I'm not sure that that should be- Ludicrous. Uh, it's utterly ludicrous. You try to run for governor. We did run for governor in- 10 and, weeks and it, of awful- that was in what, 2017, 2017? That was my first time ever in politics. Yeah, I didn't get into politics until I was almost 47 years old. I'm only right. 52. And it was just, uh You were in there for 10 weeks in that run for governor, dropped out before the Republican primary happened, and then turned right around and said, that was so much fun. I'm going to run for Congress. And here's a, a little Riggleman campaign ad oh, for no. your congressional run. We ran in 2018. This both serves as a calling card to your political career, the one office, the federal office that you've won. And it has a little bit of Riggleman bio in here. When my country called, I answered. I enlisted in the Air Force at 22, climbed through the ranks, and became a commissioned intelligence officer. That was when my team helped plan the first bombing runs into Afghanistan after 9-11. Today, I own two successful companies, including Silverback Distillery here in Nelson County. I know how to create jobs and keep our nation safe. With your vote, I'll put my experience as a veteran and a businessman to work for you in Congress. I don't even think you'd need a high-priced political strategist to say that in Virginia, touting your military record and your connection to bourbon, not really bourbon, whiskey, <laughs> to the production of grain alcohol is a win, right? Yeah. That's right in the strike zone for that part, yeah. of, the, part of the world, yeah? It, it was, and it's so cringy now, man. You know, <laughs> it's a, you know, know why, is that, that, why is that cringy? That's, you know. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that I remember even filming that, right? And then I'm like, oh, God, this is where we're at. And like Denver, man, simple. You know, simple messaging, simple messaging. I really thought that could carry me a long way, you know. And the thing is, is that they're like, well, Denver, we can't concentrate just on your military career, being a CEO and all that. Your whiskey making is huge, right? right. 
So being a distillery owner. But again, of all this, I kept telling people Congress was just my cover and distilling was just my cover. I've been an intelligence officer so long. Here's your background, though, right? So you are a Virginia dude, born and raised in Manassas. Off to the Air Force, you've got college degrees, you've got some graduate work. Very been Virginia, Virginia, Virginia. Like you're, you're not straying very far. After all the stuff that you did that was related to data analysis and, and, and the stuff you did in intelligence, which is all military related, why does a guy like that, Air Force guy, Virginia guy, distillery guy, business oriented, all of that, why in 2018, a time when basically most intelligent human beings are like, fuck no, I don't want to be in Washington. Fuck no, I don't want to be in government. You have to be a fucking fool. You couldn't fucking pay me enough. Mm -mm. I'd rather have a gun in my mouth then go and serve in the United States Congress, the House of Representatives, the most dysfunctional organization, maybe in the entire world. What like causes Denver Riggleman to be like, yeah, let's run for Congress. That sounds like a good idea. Let's take up a political career. Oh, goodness. So after the 10-week governor run, my wife and I decided I would never do this again. I hated every second of it. I took things too personal. I just hated it. And so, I mean, I, I mean, I was almost like running through the woods with both middle fingers up during that 10 weeks, you know. And so when I ran for Congress, I got a phone call because Tom Garrett, my predecessor, got out because of alcoholism. Honestly, after the nominating process, which was sort of historic in Virginia, what do they do? Absolutely. It's a little ironic that somebody getting out for alcoholism, a distiller replaced them. But that's another story. The attorney who helped me for 10 weeks in the governor room, but he was the attorney for Tom Garrett, the campaign attorney, came to my distillery and said, hey, do you want to run for Congress? I said, no. He said, well, the actual election's in five days and it's only 37 people. So John, I said, I'm going to lose. He goes, well, everybody's crazy that's running. He goes, they're all dominionists or there's a couple cool people, but most of them are nuts. The person who's going to win, she's so insane. We thought maybe you could take enough votes from her so she's not representing this district. I ran not thinking I was going to win. I was trying to stop her from winning. I end up winning by one vote with only four days of preparation. I spent zero dollars. Only 37 people voted in Virginia Convention. You talk about Virginia's insane. Only 37 people chose the nominee in 2018. And I won on the last round, 19 to 18. I looked at my wife and I'm like, holy shit, what have I done? Like, I actually won. I am an accidental congressman. But when I got in, I said, my service, and I think I'm pretty smart on policy. I can learn things quickly. Maybe I could be effective. I was very effective as a freshman. But the issue that I had is that I was trying to be with the team. I took votes I didn't want to take. I started to get very miserable. Then after the wedding, John, it just went, it went tits up pretty fast. You get elected in 2018. You're now a freshman member of the House, cruising along. They're representing the Virginia's 5th Congressional District. You're not very long into your service here. It's July of 2019 when you decide to do something that, you know, in a lot of quarters in America would be not only not controversial, people would say, oh, that's great. You officiated a same-sex wedding. It was not seen as great or even tolerable by the Republican Party in no. Virginia, and more specifically in Rappahannock County, where you were censured and accused of abandoning party principles. Tell me about what that was like. Did you realize when you went to do this that it was going to be a problem for you, or were you stunned when the party turned around and said, you doing this thing that I said, as I said, a second ago in many quarters would be like, oh, that's nice. Denver, good for you, officiating a same-sex wedding. Fabulous. How'd that I, go? So we had done an intelligence preparation of the battlefield. So when I was doing it, everybody was against it. My consultants, everyone, a couple of Republicans were like, man, you're brave. You should do it. But most people are like, Denver, even if it's the right thing to do, why would you do it? It could cost you an election. Think about that statement right there really quick, John. Yeah. 
the one person who was 100% behind me was my wife, but she said something pretty interesting. She goes, you have to do it because of who you are as a human being, as a man. She goes, but I think you're going to have the shortest political career in Virginia history. And I said, there's no way. Like even me, like I'm saying, I'm going to take some heat for some weeks, but look at my record. Maybe if I can do this and that, maybe, you know, I can sort of just tell people I'm a good guy. The Republican Party shouldn't be a party just small enough to fit in the bedroom. I had all these pithy things. This is ridiculous, right? Everybody should be able to live the way they want to live. The Republican Party is the freedom of thought, right? We're the ones who want liberty. We don't want the government involved in our lives. Well, how full of shit was I? You were talking about a Republican Party that once existed, maybe, in theory. Maybe, yeah. Not I mean, now. But what I didn't realize, too, and this is what I need people to know, is I hit the perfect storm. I'm in the perfect place for where I am now because QAnon was exploding right when I did that same-sex wedding in the summer of right. 2019. And immediately, when I went to committee meetings, people were wearing Q pins and these weird Q t-shirts. Right. I was probably the first Republican to be taken out by Q, maybe the first politician to be taken out by Q. And I started warning the Republican conference that it's coming. And everybody yes. said they thought I needed a god dang. My staff, actually a staffer said, we thought, Congressman, you needed an intervention. We thought you had gone crazy because we didn't know what QAnon was. The same-sex wedding thing opens the door to um, a, a rapid, or should I should say, the floorboards <laughs> fall out from underneath you, and you're kind of like rapidly yeah. heading towards the, the earth with no parachute. And yep. uh, and by the time you get to now to, to June of 2020, you lose in a primary at this drive-through Republican state convention in the church parking lot, as you called out, to this fellow named Bob Good, who is a self-described biblical conservative. He's currently serving member of Congress. He's also an election denier, voted to decertify the election against Joe Biden, uh, believes the big lie, spouts the big lie, was also a COVID denier. He's also someone who was an anti-vaxxer. If you're going to be replaced, Denver, you might as well be replaced by someone who represents all the things within your party that you detest. Well, That's really I what happened with you. During that drive-thru, I got to say this really quickly. I had a, a, an older lady and gentleman call me to their car, right? Everybody's wearing their mask. And I go up and I'm thinking, oh, this house sweet. You know, this is so sweet. And uh, so I lean in the window. I'm talking and said, hey, I, I really appreciate your vote. There's only 2,500 people that voted, by the way, John. 2,500. So I said, I really appreciate your – yeah. I mean, total scam. It's just a total scam. But um, I said, hey, I really appreciate your vote. She goes, ah, you know, I voted for you the first time, honey. I said, well, I really appreciate that. She goes, but you know – as much as I like you, I can't vote for no rhymes with bag lover. And so that's... No, say, no, no what, sir? Say it again? Uh, no, it rhymes with bag. Starts oh, with rhymes a, with bag. Lover. Starts okay, with an F it. lover. And um, yeah, yeah, I yeah. said, well, ma'am, I don't really, I don't need your vote. And I think that's this kind of thing that just wanted to let you know about Bob Good. That's the type of people that were attracted to him. He sort of represents... I mean, from your point of view, represents like everything that's now wrong with the Republican Party, right? Conspiracy theorist, uh, anti-vaxxer, know nothing. Know nothing. In the, Has the cult no policy of Trump. expertise, nothing in his history, nothing in his career. He just believes some things that are so out of sorts with rational thinking that it's just hard to get your arms around. Now, you raised the, the QAnon thing. I believe you're the only, at this point, still the only member of Congress who's ever really taken on the QAnon question on the House floor mm -hmm. uh, in October of 2020. By this point, by the way, you know that you've lost. So you're not coming dead back. Runner, you, know, man. You, 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 are, you are now a... <laughs> a dead stick, brother. Yes. Dead you stick. are now a, you are now what they call a lame duck. Yes. You've been basically given the heave by the party. And, and you give this speech about QAnon. I'm going to play a little bit of it. And then I want to ask you 
what it was that got QAnon to go after you to the degree that it did to the point that they were part of the story along with officiating same-sex wedding and other things that you did to run afoul of what the emerging party orthodoxy is. Why did Denver Riggleman get into QAnon's crosshairs? But let's hear this speech on the House floor. Denver Riggleman, October 2nd, 2020. QAnon believers have accused me of running a pedophilia ring for Israel, being a member of the Zionist organizational government, been called a traitor, accompanied by a picture of the gallows, and stated I was part of a target list. The the grotesque nature of the tweets and Instagram posts and the anti-Semitic tripe spewed by QAnon adherents should cause concern for everyone. I condemn this movement and urge all of my fellow members to join me in taking this step to exclude them and other extreme conspiracy theories from the national discourse. This is a very short part of a much longer speech, obviously. And I, I will say, I find the notion of you being a member of a Zionist organizational government, you know, possible. That's not necessarily impossible. But the one that, that brings me up short and the, the one that's so prophetic is QAnon believers have accused me of running a pedophilia ring for Israel. Because now it's all we talk about the Republican Party. Words I never have heard from any politician in my 32 years of covering politics. Groomer is now I hear in every district, every race, every Democrat's a groomer. Or a pedo. This is the new thing. You were ahead of the curve here and you were a Republican taken out by it. I mean, uh, when Marjorie Taylor Greene the other day accused Mitt Romney of being pro-pedo and pro-groomer because he supported KBJ to be her nomination to the Supreme Court, Katami Brown-Jackson, I was like, wow, man. Marjorie Taylor Greene is accusing Mitt Romney, who's the yeah. squarest person I've ever met, not in politics, in life. He's the squarest no. human being. He's the squarest human being on the, on the face of the earth. That's how batshit the Republican Party has gotten. But you were an early indicator of this. You're way ahead of the curve. How did you get in QAnon's crosshairs and especially running a pedophilia ring with Israel? Where did that come from? Oh, I worked really hard at that, John. The first thing was the <laughs> the first thing was the wedding. It actually started before that because I'd given an interview where I said that marijuana should be legalized and I was for marriage equality. That sort of started to bubble before even the marriage. But after the wedding, as that moved forward, I started to actually do studying and I was talking in some committees that I thought this was dangerous, which really pissed some people off. This being QAnon. This being QAnon because they're like, Denver, you know, this is real. You need to do your own research. You need to look at the internet. I'm like, you know, I'm an intelligence officer. I think you guys are smoking crack. I was trying to use humor a lot of times in these Republican committee meetings, but what I also was getting more of, and here you go, I hope you're ready for this. This is late 2019, early 2020. They're like, are you born again? Do you see yourself as saved? Are you Christian? I refused to answer those questions. I thought it was inappropriate. I said, if I believe in religious liberty, that's all you need to know. Whether I'm Christian or I'm saved or things like that is none of your business. That really started to piss people off. And then Sadly, as we got up towards the election, whatever that was in the church in June, I believe, of 2020, you're you're making me go back. Between April and June, I really got into the crosshairs of Q adherence because I started to be very vocal about the religious connection to QAnon. But can I just ask the question? Maybe this is a naive question. It's now the case that a lot of Democrats get accused of of being in a general way, oh, you're pro-pedo or you're a groomer or whatever. But for QAnon to go after another Republican, again, I might be naive about this. I'm sure I'm naive about this. And you're going to tell me that I'm an idiot to even ask this question. I know there's no real evidence of you being involved in running a pedophilia ring in, for Israel. But like, what would the QAnon people claim was the evidence that you had run a pedophilia ring for Israel? What was cited? What weird, distorted fact did they seize on? Or was it just totally fabricated? No, APAC had supported me in my election. 
So I had a, a massive Jewish contingent that had really supported me based on the opponent that I had. Um, okay. So that, that's part of it. Number two, <laughs> so, <laughs> so after the wedding, a person came up to me and told me it was pretty confrontational. There was almost, I'm not going to say it would have come to blows, but I was there. He called me the general of the sodomite armies. After that, I started to see posts where I was trying to change the sexual orientation of children. If you look at the inconsistencies of conspiracy theories and how they attack the amygdala, I think it went from, hey, I had a lot of funding from pro-Israel individuals to I did a gay wedding to obviously I'm gay myself, which was the other thing. I'm a secret Democrat. Pejoratively, if I'm a secret Democrat and I'm part of the Zog, I'm a secret Jew. And if I have a company that's successful, I'm probably laundering money for the Democrats. Since I did a gay wedding, I'm going to change the sexual orientation of children. And then, bam, I'm a pedophile. Uh, that's pretty much how it went down the line. I hope that helps everybody. It out. does. It it does because it's. I mean, it basically, it, it really all this boils down to now is if you've done anything that's not just explicitly homophobic, i.e., if you're at all tolerant, if you've done anything that touches on oh. uh, LGBTQ positivity, like having been to a gay wedding, having officiated a gay wedding, having watched Will and Grace on TV and not thrown a brick through the screen, like anything that you've done that can be interpreted as not hating gay, lesbian, LGBTQ people, anything you do in that context makes you a pedophile and a groomer, right? That's basically the equation, right? If you're not actively homophobic, you're a groomer. And God help you if you're getting donations from pro-Israel individuals. Yes. Well, that gets into the the anti-Semitism piece of it. Yeah. Now I'm I'm both of those, right? Like, right. I'm, yes, right? of course. And so I, I made that connection. Like I said, I had to work hard at this, John. I had to work hard at yeah. this. I mean, it's amazing how fast these things have happened. You know, 2018, 2019, 2020, these seems like a million years ago. At that point, when you were ringing the alarm bell about QAnon, as you said, you started out kind of your original thing was, you know, you guys are full of shit. This isn't a very big deal. I did. <laughs> and right now, on the basis of everything you know, your own experience as a politician, after being a politician, on the 1 6 committee as a staffer, and as a person who just lives in Virginia and knows a lot of Republicans, how important is QAnon to the current identity and political functioning of the Republican Party? It is the political identity of the Republican Party. It's baked in. If you look at the belief systems or what polls the best or what makes the most money, all you got to do is look at the top fundraisers in the Republican Party and how they're moving forward, you know, like the Marjorie Taylor Greens. You don't even have to say QAnon anymore. They're rebranding, my friend. It's just like a military program that fails. You just change the name if you want to get funding for it. It's the same with QAnon. They're just going to rebrand. You'll see the New World Order or they're globalist. But you still have the same belief systems that are underpinning it because QAnon is a conspiracy sticky bomb. You have to look at what they believe in rather than even having a name to it. And so much of it is just baked in and most of that with the stop the steal stuff. That's baked in, man. That's election integrity. That's happening. And so we don't have to say Q anymore, John. It's just, it just is. And that's the other thing is when you have something that's baked in, that narrative, that story has worked for people, that story has worked better than facts. I know we just came full circle, but that's really- Yeah, yeah, yeah. You make fun of your own political abilities and, and you're not a political analyst by trade, although I'd say you know a fair amount about politics. Do you think it's possible to be the Republican nominee in 2024 without courting and securing the support of a decent number of full-on QAnon believers- and QAnon adjacent conspiracy theorists. Is it possible to be a Republican nominee no. without that? No, it's not possible. I, I mean, I mean, it's, listen, what's going to happen in two years? Who knows? Two years is, a, like you said, it's a very a lifetime. Yeah. It's a lifetime, right? So it could be possible that maybe 
people start to really, as you talked about Capone earlier, where Trump said that he, you know, he was uh, investigated more than what than Billy the Kid, Jesse James, and Al- right. Alphonse Capone, the famous gangster Alphonse Capone. Yeah. I use Capone as a verb. I think if you Capone some of these people, and they look like they're defrauding individuals, yeah. it's a digital collection plate out there using conspiracy theories to collect money and make money. It could be possible that you could have a common sense person say, "Listen." You guys might have these beliefs, but these people were lying to you to try to just get money off you. Maybe you can message it that way. But right now, like in my district, the groomer stuff, the anti-Semitic stuff that's down there on the levels that you just sort of have to navigate around if you're a Republican, that kind of stuff to stop the steal, all this stuff that's there is all sort of conspiracy laden. The pedophilia stuff obviously is erupting from the adrenochrome stuff when they're talking about groomers. That's that's Q-based stuff, which goes back to the protocols of the elders of Zion with blood libel and all that. Right, so, right, right. you know, all that crap. So I think you have to at least do a wink and a nod right. at 30% of the Republican electorate. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more Denver Riggleman on Hell and High Water right after these messages. Welcome back to Hell and High Water with Denver Riggleman. And after you left Congress... Your term ran out. Bob Good had become the Republican nominee in the Virginia 5th. He won in 2020. We had the insurrection. You're out of politics. And then by last summer, after doing a fair amount of television, you were on talking about all the stuff you know about, about the insurrection itself, about the, the spread of these far-right groups, the militia groups and the conspiracy theories and all that stuff. You were quite compelling presence in a lot of cases on, on TV. Then you decided to go back in. You're going back to Capitol Hill, the place that you know had not loved you while you were there, that you had not loved while you were there, but you decided to join up with this committee and become the senior technical advisor. What drove the decision to join the committee staff, uh, and what drove the decision to get off the committee? Well, I was asked to. You know, um, I had sent stuff to Liz Cheney after January 6th that she found very compelling with the data team I was working with. So when this came out, you know, I was sort of the guy they wanted to talk. I know Congress. I know intelligence. I know data. I said I would go quiet for a long time, which I did. The issue is, is that once the Ukraine opportunity came up and already had the teams together, I left, you know, on April 30th, but I just thought that there was another round of service based on what I went through. I just have a unique set of skills and a unique set of experiences based on what happened to me, but also what I did in the military and the National Security Agency and things like that, where I thought I could be helpful. What I'm out here right now trying to do is help the committee, John. I'm trying to actually present to the American people that, listen, this committee can be successful if you give them a chance. But for me, I wanted to help the country. I'll be honest with you. I don't know how much I have left in me for this, uh, this public service stuff. This has been pretty difficult. Even the last couple of weeks since I left the committee, I was going to actually be in Ukraine at this point, but hostility stopped me from going there. Difficult in what sense? Because I mean, you, you know, why, did you, why did you decide to leave when you left? These hearings just about to come up for someone who'd been working on the committee staff for the period of time you had been. You know, this would have been for a lot of people. This is the main event. This is it. The thing is happening in June, and you decided to, to bail a month early. What was that about? Because I'm an ethics guy. When I was asked to help with this Ukrainian Freedom Alliance, I was going to be meeting with foreign leaders. So when we talked to ethics, they said Denver. You have to make one decision or another. You can't be working for a congressional committee. And if you're working under any company that looks like they're doing any lobbying and all, it's an ethical issue. So we worked it a few weeks. And finally, they said, you know, you got to choose to help the Ukraine Freedom Alliance or you have to stay on the committee. I talked to my teams. I put the teams together for technical issues. All of that data was done. We only had a little bit left coming in. I'd already done everything. So I felt comfortable leaving it in the hands of the analysis teams that uh, we created. 
So there was no falling out between you and the nope. committee that drugs. That's why. Really- that's no. There was no falling out. That's why that email I just thought was silly. There was no falling yeah. out. I have a great relationship with most individuals in there. Some I don't. Obviously, you know who that is now. So there you go. That's it. Right? <laughs> Apparently, that's the staff director, and you were not necessarily on the best of terms. No, I mean, there's you know, there's personalities. You know, you always have issues and relations right. like that. Sure. And plus, you know, I was unique, and I think people always had an issue with my uniqueness. So. Let me ask you just one last thing, as an overview kind of question about your time on the committee. I'll kind of billboard this by saying, because Denver, I think, sincerely does not want to do anything to get in the way of what the committee is about to do over the course of the next three weeks. If, I say if, there was anything that he was frustrated by or thought that the committee didn't do well, and he's not going to come out and say it right now. So I'm just going to like, I just know you're not going to, you're not going to trash the committee. You've been very clear about that. So I know that is the case. But just give me a sense of... This is an unusual thing, a select committee, bipartisan, with two Republicans and, and one Republican who you could argue, you know, maybe is the most powerful person on the committee in some ways, Liz Cheney, uh, and certainly the, the public face of it to a large extent. You know, bipartisan committees, select committees are tricky. Two parties have to work together. You're a Republican. A lot of the staff over there is Democratic staff. There was also a lot of questions about whether this committee was moving fast enough. So the questions about can the, a bipartisan committee actually function well? Can it function quickly enough? Can they get their arms around all this? Do they have the technical sophistication? As you look back over the time that you were on the committee, how do you assess those things? Like that this committee really pulled together. There's obviously always tensions, but we pulled together and got the job done. We, We had to move at light speed. Or do you look back and think without blaming anybody that like, you know, some of the natural tensions between the parties and some of the unfortunately bureaucratic kind of slowness that that generally afflicts Capitol Hill, that the committee didn't get as much done. I mean, how do you kind of rate the whole thing? You got you you really killed it. You fell a little short on, on those metrics. There are ways in which you could have improved. How do you assess your time there and what you learned about how a committee like this functions internally in that sense? Investigative teams killed it. I want to say the teams behind the doors killed it. Leadership, I think, had a lot of challenges, I think, because Congress is automatically sort of specifically compartmented, and compartmentalization is very difficult to work when you need a wide-ranging sort of new way of structuring data analysis. It was always my personal tension because I know Congress, but I also knew that speed was of the essence. That's the fight. That's the evolving I was talking about and the learning that has to happen on the congressional side if we're ever to do an investigation like this again. If I had my druthers, me personally, if I had to go back, I probably would have tried to actually go get funding to do a lot of the social media stuff independently outside of the committee based on the freedom. What people don't understand about Congress is authorities issues. And you don't want to get sideways on those authorities issues because you don't want to look like, you know, you're sort of pushing against the First and Fourth Amendments. So Congress has really huge limitations that are structural and constitutional that people need to understand. So I think if you do something like this, this big, it has to be much more independent outside of the congressional structure. And that's not even a critique. That's just the way our government's sort of position. So I would... I would submit that after this is all over, if I do have some friends who've asked if I would do this independently, we do have access to massive amounts of data where I would like to do about another year to a year and a half and take a look at what's going forward. But would I do this again as a senior technical advisor after being a former congressman on the staff? Absolutely not. It was a great thing to do, 
but it was just like my two years of Congress. I would rather set myself on fire than do this again, hmm. but I needed to do it. And Don't uh, do that. Denver, don't set yourself on fire. Uh, yes. Although there's probably, given that your distillery work, there's probably a right. fair amount of flammable material. Like, uh, you know, you, you, how, what do you think percentage of your, of your body weight is alcohol at this point? Like, oh, gosh, just, this morning, only 12 ounces. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to I just get back to politics and the future of the party. We were talking about the role that QAnon plays and how much it is. You said it is the party now in a lot of respects. It is the party. So your friend, Liz Cheney, you admire Liz Cheney, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I just, just like, like highly, right? Yes. She's done a kind of remarkable thing. I don't want to be too adjectival, but it's remarkable in the sense that worthy of remark. She's a person of solid gold conservative pedigree who has defied the party orthodoxy, who has gone all in on trying to all in yes to, to defy donald trump his insistence on loyalty his insistence on the big lie on all of that and not just voted to impeach him but but has taken a leadership position in this committee put herself out front what do you think that is that motivates her what is that about i just have not many many altruists in politics uh, and i don't mean to suggest i don't mean to be cynical all this mean is like she's a cheney you know she understands the long game politically yes. what's the combination of calculation and idealism and fear or ambition what's the constellation of things that are driving her to do the things she's done in your experience oh, god I don't, I don't i can't see into her heart completely but i know part of what liz has said but you know in, in our discussions i think it's the anger at the american condition and that an individual like president trump could affect what he did on january 6th you know Remember, I talked to Liz right afterwards, and I had just left Congress. And the fact that she wanted proof of what happened, what she said to Jim Jordan that day on the floor, I think there's just this horror. I think a lot of us had this horror, like, this can't be what the Republican Party stands for. But I think it goes beyond Republican. I think it's like, this is not what Americans stand for. This is absolutely not only tragic and horrific, but it was completely based on a ludicrous premise. And that's what scares me. And I think it scared Liz, too, that you... You have a, a sacking of the Capitol based on fantasy. It, it it would be no more real if they were attacking the Capitol because they thought that alien abduction individuals were being hidden in the caverns of the Capitol, right? It's, right. And I right. think it's that horror. When I say horror, it's not like horror, like, ah, horror. It's like just a horror of the American condition. Like, that right. there's no way that can be a thing. And I think that certain people have this automatically anti-bully sentiment. And I think Liz right. has an anti-bully sentiment. And I think that's what people need to realize, whether it's me or whether it's the people on the committee, most of them, they have this anti-bully sentiment. And they also want to know what really happened, what are the facts? And I think right. when you combine that plus this horror that somebody could affect this change using fantasy, I think that's the issue. I want to play two pieces of sound right now. I think this Liz Cheney primary race, which happens in August, this primary that she's facing, multi-candidate primary, my view is that it's interesting as just as a piece of politics, but it's also symbolic of a lot of important things. And this is going to, a lot of people are going to make a lot out of this race. So here's two pieces of sound that illustrate the state of that race. Here's Liz Cheney's new campaign ad just released a couple days ago. This is all voters, Wyoming voters talking about Liz Cheney. You're going to hear the voices of a number of them saying things about her. And then you'll hear her voice at the end. Here's Liz Cheney's new campaign ad. I'm voting for Liz Cheney, and here's why. As a mom, I want a statesman, not a politician. I want someone who is civil and serious and someone my children can look up to. So many people today claim to be a constitutional conservative. Liz truly is one. She has the courage to do the right thing, to stand up to bullies. Join me in voting for Liz Cheney on August 16th. I'm Liz Cheney, and I approve this message. 
All right, so now I want to play uh, a little more of Donald Trump. This is what Donald Trump had to say about Liz Cheney at that Casper Wyoming rally on May 26th. Let's hear Donald Trump on Liz Cheney, and then we'll talk about it on the other side. There is no rhino in America who has thrown in her lot with the radical left more than Liz Cheney. She has gone crazy. Now I get it. I've been hearing all these stories for years. Now I guess she's gone totally crazy. Liz Cheney hates the voters of the Republican Party, and she has for longer than you would know. Wyoming deserves a congresswoman who stands up for you and your values, not one who spends all of her time putting you down, going after your president in the most vicious way possible. There are a lot of things to say that would be kind of easy, cheap things to say there. And again, it's always easy to make fun of Donald Trump. But here's my observation about this as I listen to those pieces of sound. Liz Cheney has, has decided to, to spend money. She's raised six, she's got almost $7 million in the bank right now, has way more money than any of her challengers. And, and she still seems to be in, in a decent amount of trouble in this race, even though she's raised seven times as much as her next closest opponent, $7 million. It's hard to spend $7 million in a congressional race in Wyoming. But in Wyoming it is, much. right. Very hard to do, but she's got plenty of money, right? So she puts money behind this ad. And here are the virtues that Liz Cheney thinks and her people think, appeal to the voters of Wyoming. Statesman, civil and serious, constitutional conservative, courage, stand up to bullies. There's a bunch of other stuff in the ad too, but those right. are some of the qualities that they think are politically salient. And here's Donald Trump, who goes there and, and, and th thousands of people show up in Casper, Wyoming to cheer him as he says, she's gone crazy. And she, that Cheney hates the voters of the Republican Party. She's a rhino. She puts you down. She goes after your president. She's advancing the radical left agenda. Like, it's, it's just kind of incredible that their assessments of what the politically salient message is in the same place are 180 degrees out. And my question is for you, who's right? Those are messages pitched at, at, at two very different views of what the Republican uh, Party is. Yeah. First of all, when you look at Liz's ad, those qualities are what people should be voting for. And I also think that ad works in a lot more places in Wyoming. I'm just going to put that out there. Number one, right? Yeah. You, Number you two. Think she, you think she has national ambitions? Of course. I mean. You, you think she wants to run for president? I, at some point, I think she does. I think Liz, though, is going to make decisions based on data. I think she's sort of that kind of person. And, you know, running that ad, I think, also is very interesting. I wonder what her polling looks like, right? What their crosstabs look like. Because my guess yeah. is that the NRCC is doing a lot of polling inside and other polling institutions do a lot of polling inside Wyoming. I think what Donald Trump is saying might be polling better. And I guess that's what we've been talking about the whole time, haven't we, buddy? That it might be polling better. And right. that's that's where I think we're at. Do you think there's a world where Liz Cheney could lose this primary and then still have a plausible base to run for president of the Republican Party? Does I do. I, I actually do. I, I you know, in the, Republic, in the Republican Party? I don't mean as an independent. Uh, uh, in, the in the Republican Party, Party, I think that's what she wants to do. You, just told, I, me that the, that, you told me that QAnon is the Republican Party, Denver. Most of it. But I think if she runs, I think Liz would run. If she even runs in 24, I think she's running for the future. I think you've got to get out there initially sometimes to see what it's like or what you have to do or what the polling is or what you can change. I think Liz honestly believed at the beginning of this that she could change things, that she could somehow, you know, sort of right the Republican Party ship. 
And I think these hearings and what happens with her in her primary is going to be a big indicator. I don't think we can make any massive guesses, but if you look at the latest polling or the little bit of polling that's done in Wyoming, you're right. You know, Liz doesn't look great in the polling. But what happens with that kind of war chest? Does she spend that war chest? If she only spends 20% of that war chest, does that signal something, right? John, you're a politico, right? Yeah. I'm just looking at the monies and the data. So what, what does that mean? I do think that they're testing their messaging right now, and then they're polling on that messaging. I think the NRCC has already polled. I think the messaging is very aggressive. I think they know what people want to hear right now in this electorate. I know people are making hay about the Georgia primaries and things like that, but I just don't think you can. I think there's something unique when people get very angry and they're sort of wrapped into this hysteria. And I think that's what Liz is fighting in Wyoming is that sort of hysteria that's polling well. I often think that people take a lesson from a given congressional district or a given state and overanalyze it and over uh, generalize it. But this is one of these things where I does feel like that the combination of her as a leader of this 1-6 committee, again, arguably more of a leader. I know disrespect to Benny Thompson, but like, you know, she's more the public face of it. She's more effective communicator. She's like the most famous person on the committee. And she's right. the most, because she's taking political risks to be on it, she's also kind of more of a portrait. She's more a compelling figure because she's got a lot on the line. But the combination of her performance there in the national spotlight over the course of the next month followed quickly by this primary. It does feel to me like that that is about more than just her, that it's there's some element of like, this is a fight for the soul of the Republican Party that she's trying to wage. Yeah, I, I agree with it. That's why I say that ad is is much more than about Wyoming. I think Liz is from that sort of disposition to look long term. What does this look like? How is this going to play out? I think she has good consultants. I think she has a family that will consult with her. So she has a lot going on. No doubt a Wyoming loss would hurt short term, but long term, it could identify Liz as one of the individuals in the party. There's a lot of them, right? But one of them at at that high level that's saying, hey, we got to look long term. How does this messaging look long term? Can we actually write the ship? I think your analysis is spot on on that. So I want to play one last piece of our friend, Peter Navarro. As the grand jury, the day before the indictment was unsealed, the day that the grand jury was handing up the indictment, he did one of his three appearances on MSNBC with Ari Melber. And the reason I want to play this is because it goes to, this is not about Peter Navarro. It's about the stakes of the election. Okay. Um, so Ari said to him in the filing, this crazy filing that Navarro had done, where he was uh, filing as to why the 1-6 committee didn't have standing and why it wasn't a legitimate committee. He wrote, if an incumbent can strip a predecessor of privilege, just imagine what will happen to Biden and his advisors if Republicans win in 2024. If I'm not dead or in prison, I will lead the charge. And Ari basically said, well, lead what charge? And this is what Navarro said. Okay. Yeah. You bet your ass that I will lead the charge. I will take Adam Schiff and Jamie Raskin and Nancy Pelosi and Luria and all of those clowns and kangaroos. I'll take Biden and every single senior staff member in there. And do what? And And do what? with subpoenas. We'll start with the impeachment of Biden for what? Ukraine, the southern border, all manner of things he is guilty of and will will subpoena his senior staff. I will push as hard as I can to use the same BS that the Democrats are using now to try to put me in prison for standing up for principle. So there's Navarro basically saying, if we get back in control in 2022 and 24, we're coming at Democrats and we're going to, you know, now the idea that it's all retaliation for Democrats is obviously a bullshit thing. They were using a lot of these techniques long before anything happened. But there's an anger 
there's a, a desire for retribution. Trump clearly has that, Denver. I can summarize the whole thing, you know, relatively quickly in these states where the voting laws have been changed and the way that the votes get counted have changed. Doug Mastriano, who's an out front election denier and conspiracy theorist, is now the Republican nominee for governor in Pennsylvania, one of the most important states in the country in 2024. All of the big lie is afoot. All the stuff we've talked about. And you hear Navarro and you read the tone and tenor, the arguments he's making, the groundwork he's laying for what is clearly going to be if Donald Trump loses again to whoever, if he's the nominee, or if somebody else is, if it's Governor DeSantis from Florida or somebody else who now has, currently the Proud Boys have kind of taken over the Miami Republican Party because that's just the way it is now in the GOP. It just says to me, man, 2022 and 2024, the stakes have never been higher for the future of American democracy. What's the, 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 the phrase? Sometimes uh, panic is the appropriate reaction. This is an apocalyptic kind of moment. Just because uh, you're paranoid doesn't mean you're wrong. <laughs> or just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you don't have enemies. That's right. Am I right? I say, it, does it feel like this to you? We have these conversations all the time now where I feel like I used to be the person who was like not a catastrophizer. I'd always be like, yeah, it's all going to be fine. Everybody chill the fuck out. You know, it's America. It's going to work out all right. And when I see the gathering storm clouds around this stuff that you've seen up close in these email communications and all the SIG ins that you look at in a deeper way, you know what's going on with the Proud Boys and the militia guys and all that stuff. Like, are you not just like looking at the next two years and going, man, if this goes the wrong way, it could be lights out. Could be horrific. You know, you yeah, it could be horrific. And that's the thing is that I know everybody always plays these clips like we're only one generation away from losing our democracy or, you know, things of that nature. And I always was like, yeah, okay, we're America, right? But after January 6th and after what I've seen and after a lot of people have seen and the evidence that you see, there's some fundamental issues we got to deal with, right? I'd be very probably understating it, but I do believe that, well, I'll tell you this first. I won't be surprised if I'm subpoenaed in 2022. I'm not going to be surprised if there's a committee to actually investigate the committee. And if that happens and that kind of retribution happens, what you have is a mirroring issue because the biggest indication of far right violence is far left violence. The biggest indicator of far left violence is far right violence. And what you're going to see after 2022, if it becomes that aggressive, violence is absolutely possible. And I think that's what people need to realize is that this type of rhetoric this nativism, this type of tribalism, the fact that you're going to go after people, retribution, there's always a flip to that, right? There's always a reaction. And that's the thing that I'm looking at, you know, going forward. We're going to take one more break and then we'll be back with more of Denver Riggleman on Hell and High Water. And we're back with Denver Riggleman, former Virginia congressman, former Republican staffer on the 1-6 committee. I like it when people who are ostensibly sober, I don't mean sober as in not drinking because you actually have been drinking throughout this interview. Um, and, Just a little uh, bit. A little bit. Uh, you know, Heilman's old style from La Crosse, yeah. Wisconsin. I'm from a brewing family. Uh, so very good. Uh, very a, a, good. A beer. My dad, I, we had a keg on tap in my living room when I was growing <laughs> up in, in Southern California. So like, I'm, I'm all for a beer. I'm all for a beer at any time of day. That's but I got to say, the fact that my... My degree of alarm 
I really think there is, even for those of us who try not to hyperbolize more than necessary and definitely try not to catastrophize and, you know, I just want to smoke a bud and be chill and like, it's okay. You know, like if Mitt Romney had won the presidency in 2012, I wouldn't have been like, oh, I'm going to leave the country. It's like, right. you know, McCain, lots of Republicans over time that I was like, eh, I don't like their policies that much, but like, ah, it's fine. It'll be all right. You know, uh, now it's like, holy fuck, man, if this goes the wrong way, we're really doomed. And I'm glad to hear that you have a degree of alarm that's similar to mine because you are Mr. Military, Mr. Intelligence, Mr like Republican dude in Virginia who's just as uh, weirded out and freaked out by all this as me. Now, I have one last topic I need to address with you. Yes. Okay. Sure. Really? Because it's literally the most interesting thing. Okay. When people say, when I say Denver Riggleman, the first thing anybody always says is they say the following two words. They say, Bigfoot erotica. <laughs> it's the case that when you ran for Congress, the Democratic nominee, Leslie Coburn, mother of Olivia Wilde, I will sure. say for anybody who doesn't know that, said that you were into Bigfoot erotica and made you, it was such a big deal, the Bigfoot erotica thing that it got you on Saturday Night Live. You got played by Mikey Day, Weekend Update segment, Michael Che. Let's play that, because if you get to be on Saturday Night Live, you've hit the big time, brother. Yeah, Here it is. It was great. One of the strangest stories to emerge from the midterm elections is that a Virginia Republican, Denver Riggleman, won his election despite being accused of being a devotee to a Bigfoot erotica. Here to clear things up is Congressman-elect Denver Riggleman. Thank you. Did you write a Bigfoot porn? All right, okay. So porn is a cheap thrill, Michael. I write as a joke Bigfoot erotica <laughs> where the sexual scenes come out of story and character and the sex is earned and therefore hotter. <laughs> and if you had read any of my Forbidden Forest trilogy, oh, no. you would know that. Now, how cool is that to be on Saturday Night Live? It was not cool. Not cool. No. Because Bigfoot erotica, because that was the reason you were on. It's not like all publicity is good publicity. No. And, and when it comes to Bigfoot erotica. Well, the thing is, first of all, when I saw it, I'm like, at least be funny. Jesus. And, you know, the second thing is that, you know, Olivia Wilde being Leslie Coburn's daughter was why that went viral. And the other thing, too, is the book she was referring to was about disinformation, which was Bigfoot, It's Complicated. And... The pictures that took off my Instagram were my military pals who thought it was funny on my birthday, which it says on there, I thought this would be funny to post on my birthday because I was about to publish a Bigfoot disinformation book. And I was comparing that to damaging belief systems. And I thought that would be the best way to present that is crazy belief and how that dominates people's lives. And the fact that my book on disinformation was presented that way, you know, on all these shows was absolutely to my family was devastating. I thought it was funny at first. I was a little bemused. But when I hit Saturday Night Live, and then I started getting accused of pedophilia by the left, um, yeah. based on that, it got a little bit crazy at that point. I mean, I have to admit, when the, when the thing started before, when I heard about this, I was like most normal people, I didn't know who you were, and I never heard about anything about this. Suddenly there was this Bigfoot erotica charge floating around. I thought, you know, it's a kind of such an odd thing that, that I think you normally see pop up again in campaigns. We see a lot of things these days that don't pop up in American campaigns very often, but it must have been like hard. Like once, I mean, I, I now that I think about having it being elevated to Saturday Night Live level. Uh, For something it, it's, I, it, totally false. And, you know, and the thing is, I haven't gotten any callbacks from these jokers. And that's the issue, right? Is that they put it out there. It's it, it's devastating to families or something like that. Like, for instance, I mean, I enjoy listening to Colbert sometimes, but the way that he hit me, right, and things like that, you're like, you know, call me back if you got the guts, because yeah. I'm a badass. Yeah. And I'm just telling you, I mean, I am. And the fact that that would be out there because a, it was retweeted 
And even when think about how you thought about it. I have people today goes, actually, we thought it was real. But when you see what's happening with politicians today, it doesn't seem like that's that crazy now, does it? Bigfoot erotica might have been crazy then, but today I'd be like, not a big deal. It went from funny to where my family was just devastated by it because they knew how it hurt me. And to be, you know, lampooned like that, first of all, be funny. Number yeah. two, have the guts to call me back. Right. Um, but that's the issue that you have in this disinformation age. And that's our fight. It's a much more compelling story that Denver Riggleman likes to run around in a furry Bigfoot costume in the woods doing weird Bigfoot porn fetish stuff than he's a guy who wrote a book on disinformation where actually what happened to him was proof of his theory. That shit's right. not as exciting. you know. Well, it's, but, but here's my question about it. Really, we'll make this the last question only because I don't know how much you've ever talked about it. I know you – because of the campaign, you ended up talking about it a fair amount, right? And if we put aside erotica and we put aside – the porn aspects of it. Right. I mean, it's hard to do in our world because, <laughs> yeah. you know, erotica and porn on their own are pretty compelling. And then if you add Bigfoot in, you know, come on, right. um, who can, who can resist? But here's the thing. There was this interview you did on CRTV that's on YouTube from June of 2018. There, you, you were genuinely seemed interested in Bigfoot. I just want to play this one piece sure. of sound here because I think at least part of this is people seizing on, I mean, Leslie Coburn is not a, I mean, I'm caused you obviously by bringing this up has caused you a fair amount of pain and discomfort, but she's not a lunatic. And I think they decided to seize on this because they thought there was like at least some kind of like thing there, at least your enthusiasm for Bigfoot itself. So just play this one piece of sound. I just help me understand this, like what Bigfoot actually does mean to you. I took my wife on her 15 year anniversary to a Bigfoot expedition um, with a friend and um, she was not real happy about it. I don't know, cause I said, I have a special trip for you planned. I think it's romantic. I think you're never gonna forget it. And I think she was thinking maybe Cancun um, I think she was thinking maybe Europe somewhere. Um, but then I took her to Olympic National Forest uh, in rain gear where we tromped through the woods screaming for Bigfoot using night vision goggles. I think that's sort of unequivocal and it makes me, I think, a great husband. <laughs> no, that's funny. That last line's funny, right? Yes. Um, it sounds tongue in cheek. I assume that story is true. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's true. Right. I, Christine, you know, we had never gone on a honeymoon. We were very poor when I was younger and then finally became an officer. And we had really struggled until we had finally, at my 15-year anniversary, 2004, you know, I was doing pretty well. I was at NSA Special Projects. I was actually making over six figures for the first time in my life. Gosh, I could afford to go to Outback Steakhouse, not Dairy Queen. Right, what a life. So in our 15-year anniversary, I told her, take something special. It was an absolute prank. Here I am in NSA Special Projects. I'm, I'm in counterterrorism. I fly her to Olympic National Forest, and she was not happy. She's like, I thought this was going to be special. But it was at that point, those days where I figured out that these people were absolutely batshit. And my background in counterterrorism, I'm like, these different belief systems represent what's happening with people who allow this to overtake their life. And, and I want to tell you something. You know, I was raised very religious, and I had to sort of yeah. leave that. And that really struck me when people had this glow in their eyes about different types of Bigfoot beliefs, whether they're from UFOs, Bigfoots that are mystical and interdimensional long jumpers, Bigfoots that can use infrasound, just amazing types of things. So yeah, it's all true. I thought it was funny. My wife didn't, but she does now. That's where I learned that there's all these connections with people who believe crazy things. And right. it really was part of what I was doing at NSA at the time. And that's why I was so interested in it. That's it. That's it. I mean, it's not as exciting. I know as No, no, no. It does obviously connect in a deep way to one of the questions that people ask now, which is like, why are people have become so conspiracy minded? And 
Bigfoot was one of these things in our childhood was kind of a funny thing. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, there are Bigfoot fetishists. There are people who believe in this thing. It's funny. It's a weird <laughs> mystery. I remember like as a kid, 11 years old, you talk about the Bigfoot thing. It's like telling this story about the creature from the Black Lagoon or the troglodyte that lives in the sewer or the alligators in the sewers and all right. that kind of stuff. It's kind of like campfire stories, right? And I guess what's interesting about it also is this, and this is where I want to end because you did make a point, a meta point about this, right? It feels like you did that interview that I just played, right? Which is an interview from June of 2018. Right. And I feel like that's an interview that is almost like a prelapsarian quality to it. It's kind of like, I did this interview that ended up becoming fodder for the thing that spun out of control in a lot of ways. It was an interview that you gave in a moment when you didn't understand how much a few comments like that could be seized on, ripped out of context, and then turned into something else that could then become viral, that could then kind of become a giant fucking pain in the ass for you and your family. Obviously, you still won the election. But I feel like that interview was an interview of a kind of a political novice, like someone who gave an interview about something without totally getting, even though you understood a lot of things about misinformation and conspiracy theories, how like an interview, a kind of tongue-in-cheek interview about some kind of vaguely weird, can be maybe racy topic could get wrenched and used and could spin out of control. Is that right? That is right. I remember my daughter, she's like, hey, dad, this is hilarious, but maybe you should take this off Instagram, right, before you run. And I'm like, you'd have to be an idiot, right? To The issue that I found out is a lot of the electorate are idiots. And I know that's probably going to be played many times, but there is a significant portion of people that aren't very bright. The issue that I had, though, is that very bright people refuse to actually fact check things. But that's that's what we're at. That's what we're in. It's always been like that. But social media exacerbates it. And yeah, that interview, if I had to do it over again, I still would because that's who I am. And I think that's what's what I'm happy about is that with everything that's going on, with all the questions that you've asked me, is I just can't give a shit about what right. every single person thinks about me. But when it affects your family, things change. And politics affects people's families. It's real. Because even though people are spouting bullshit like space lasers or the stuff that you see out there or 9-11 truthers or all of that, what happens is, is that can actually lead to violence. You know, there's not yeah. going to be Bigfoot erotica people storming the Capitol. That's not going to happen. I hope not. If it does, we've actually crossed the Rubicon. But, <laughs> but, I think, um, but I think when you have people that are wearing horns attacking the Capitol because they're at that easily led, or you have people at Saturday Night Live talking about things that don't exist to hurt somebody without any notion of fact-checking. And that's fine. That's what humor is sometimes. But the thing is, it attacked my family. And honestly, at that point, based on how I was raised, based on military, I was a bouncer, I wanted to kick people's asses. Like, I wanted to fight. Right. And that's the issue that you have in politics, is that they say it's a big boys game, but it's actually a disinformation game. And morality and winning an election are sometimes mutually exclusive. And that's the issue. That's what I've really learned in politics. I mean, yes. And look, there's a whole other conversation, which we will not have right now, because we've already gone on way too long. and You've given me too much of your time, Denver, and you're like, need that next beer. This is a great conversation. I'm so grateful that you took the time. Of course. But there is a deeper thing here, which I still don't, I honestly don't understand what it is that's happened in our culture that's pushed us into this moment 
There have always been conspiracy theories. There have always been wives' tales. There's always been crazy people with kooky things that they believe. None of that's new in the history of human society. None of it. But it's infiltration into the mainstream and the prevalence of them, the degree to which they have a, a hold over a large part of our political culture, is, I think, maybe not unprecedented. I don't know enough history to say unprecedented. But certainly in my lifetime, we're so much more prone to these conspiracy theories and they have so much more of a tight grip. I don't understand why that is. And I, I'm interested in a historical sense about the economic, social conditions, cultural conditions, the underpinnings of it. What is it that makes a society suddenly more vulnerable to those kinds yeah. of things? I don't know the answer to it. And it seems like a long discussion, but I, is, I do I do think it's pretty important because, man, it's weird out there, dude. It's, it's so weird. weird. And, and, you know, if I had one sentence, and we'll have this discussion another time, it's a propensity for people to believe that supernatural forces are controlling things. And there seems to be this overarching belief by a lot of people that people are smarter than they are or, or globalist forces, but globalist equals saintness. It's almost like we've gone through a new iteration of the satanic panic. And this could be a long discussion, but that's where I'm going to end it. Well, I'll tell you the last time it seems to me there was a moment like this in American society where people felt like they were really losing control of their lives on a million levels was the period from the agrarian to the industrial age. And when yeah. that happened, we had prohibition. And and prohibition is still one of those things. People don't understand it as well as, as they need to understand it because it is a profound thing that happened when America right. decided to make alcohol illegal. And I will say it's not totally dissimilar, but thank God, Denver, as bad as the whole QAnon thing is, as bad as the conspiracy theories are, I think I can live with those users than I can live with prohibition again. Amen, brother. <laughs> and alcohol at this point, man, I would just be fucked. I'd rather have the guy with the horns on at the Capitol than be denied. Than be denied uh, a whiskey or a Guinness. That's it. My Guinness. That's correct. My Pappy Van Winkle or my Guinness Stout. That's, that's right. Denver Riggleman, genius, saint, scholar, a man who knows his way around an investigative committee and <laughs> has been super gracious with giving us a good preview about what's about to unfold at the Center of American Politics on the January 6th committee front. Denver, thank you. Thank you so much, buddy. Hell on High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Denver Riggleman for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell on High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell on High Water and my partner on the introductions to the podcast. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor, Megan Burney, or she's our producer, and she also engineered the podcast. Margot Gray, our researcher and assistant producer, and Marshall Eisen, the one and only, he is our executive producer. 